Welcome, if you're here in person, welcome to those of you joining us online. We've been talking about a gentleman by the name of Nehemiah uh, for the last few weeks, and if you're uh, joining us for the very first time this morning, it's been a few weeks since you've been here, we'll, we'll catch up in a second here on uh, what's been going on in the life of this, this guy, a pretty exciting uh, life he's lived up to this point. But um, just to kind of set the scene for where we're going to go this morning, I wonder if you've ever been in a, a situation in your life where, where everything is just going great. And then it isn't. Ever been in something like that where things are just going really well and then they're not? Uh, Case and I were talking about this last night. Case is my wife. And uh, uh, we remembered a situation. We hadn't been married very long. Uh, we had no children at this point. We went on a vacation back to England to see my family. And uh, while staying with them, we took a little two or three day trip. And we went down to the south coast of England with my mum and dad and my sister and her husband. Uh, none of us had kids at the time. So it was just kind of a fun little two or three day break. And uh, it wasn't the summer. It was maybe fall or, uh, or winter. But it was nice enough to be able to do some outdoor activities. So we were looking around for things to do, and uh, we came across this opportunity where you could go horse riding, and not just horse riding, okay, you get to go on this like kind of group ride together, and it goes through the woods, and uh, this lovely little trail out onto the beach, and then you get to ride along the beach. And I'm, I mean, you've seen this in movies, right? I mean, it's always slow motion. You know, the horses are galloping through the ocean. And I was like, this could be the greatest experience ever. We've got to do this. So we all signed up to go. Actually, my mum and dad didn't go. I think they may have come along, but they didn't ride horses. Very smart. Uh, but me and my sister and uh, Casey, I think we all did. And I remember arriving at the stables, and there was a form we had to fill in, uh, and name, address, all that kind of thing. And then there was, how experienced are you? Now, I knew that if we put beginner, we were going to get like a slow horse. They were going to like limit what we could do. So Casey, when she was younger, her family owned a horse. And when I was about eight, I did two horse riding lessons. So I put intermediate. I figured that was, <laughs> that was a pretty safe. I mean, we weren't experienced, but we weren't beginners. So uh, we left the stable in a line. And it was beautiful. It was everything you pictured it could be. It's just beautiful. It was a wonderful day. We're kind of going through the woods on this trail. And it was, everything was going so well. It was just the picture perfect experience. It was everything I hoped it would be. It was going so well. And then it wasn't. <laughs> because then we got to the beach and uh, none of us, at least Casey and I, really had any idea how to control these horses. So once we got to the beach, they just basically took off. I mean, they just started galloping down the beach. I'm like holding on to the neck of my horse because it's going really fast. The lady in front's kind of leading us. And suddenly out of the corner of my eye, I can see Casey. Like she's overtaking. And she also is hanging onto the saddle for dear life. This horse is tearing down the beach. And I can hear the lady saying, ma'am, ma'am, you need to stay behind. Stay behind. You got she's like, I can't stop it. Rusty, it turns out, was a retired racehorse. So Rusty... <laughs> who Casey was riding. Rusty doesn't stay at the back. Rusty's going to win. So, and honestly, there was this split second where I saw Casey fly by so fast, just hanging up a dear life. And I thought, this is it. This is how our marriage ended. This, is, <laughs> this was the day she left me and got on a plane and went back to America. I mean, it was just terrifying. We got back that night. We were bruised on our arms, on our backsides, from bumping up and down this saddle. It had been going so well up to that point, And then it didn't. So unfortunately, we're going to do a little recap here of Nehemiah's life. And you're going to discover for the last three weeks, we've been talking about things in Nehemiah's life. And they've been going so well until today. So 
Who is Nehemiah? Nehemiah lived about 600 years before the birth of Jesus, and uh, he was a Jew, but he was living in exile uh, because the, uh, the Jews, the Israelites, they'd been conquered by the Babylonians, and they'd all been taken into exile to live away from their lands. But some time had passed, and now the Persians, they've conquered the Babylonians. They're a lot nicer than the Babylonians were, so they were freeing up some of the Jews to return to their homelands. Uh, Nehemiah decides to stay because he's got this really good job. He was the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer basically tasted the king's food and tasted the drinks to make sure it wasn't poison. So it doesn't sound like a glamorous job, but he was actually one of the very closest people to the king. He was almost like his chief of staff. It was a very prestigious, very important position that Nehemiah held. So he's living the life of luxury, living in the palace. And one day some people from his home country of Israel, they, they show up at the palace and they're chatting. And he says, how are things back in Jerusalem? And they bring this terrible report that things are a mess. The walls of the city are in disrepair. The gates are destroyed. People are upset. And we learn that even though Nehemiah's living this comfortable life, it breaks his heart to hear this. Nehemiah is a man of empathy. We discover he's a man of prayer. He cries out to God, God, I want to fix this. I want to be a part of the solution to make this better. And he prays and he prays and he prays. And finally, an opportunity opens up for him to approach the king and ask the king permission to return back to his homeland. And not only does the king give him permission, the king actually sends him with supplies and his blessing and letters so he can get through these, these foreign areas knowing that he's, on behalf, he's going on behalf of this king. So it's just this amazing story. Off he goes back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Now, one of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite movies is uh, the scene in Braveheart. I know you all remember it well, where William Wallace is riding backwards and forwards in front of the troops. They're all scared. They're not sure if they want to attack or not, and uh, they want to kind of just retreat. And William Wallace just kind of musters them up and, and gives them this... this um, a charismatic speech of like, how we've got to do this. This is for Scotland. We've got to, and uh, if you'll remember the scene, there's a famous line. He says, they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom, which is my Scottish accent, which would be terrible in England, but here you have no idea. So it, it sounded pretty Scottish. <laughs> so uh, it's a great clip. Um, I remember in a youth group I was a part of once, one of our youth leaders played this clip in the youth group because it really tied in with his message about making a stand. And uh, it was perfect. It was a great clip to show. Unfortunately, he didn't preview the clip before he showed it. So uh, halfway through the clip, William Wallace talks about how people say that fire comes out of his eyes and lightning bolts out of it. Well, he didn't really prep it beforehand. And all the kids in the youth group were like, yeah. So we won't show the clip this morning. But um, I don't read about this happening in the book of Nehemiah, but something like this must have happened because when Nehemiah arrives back in Jerusalem, these people have been living here for several years now. They've just kind of accepted their fate that the walls are in disrepair. But something Nehemiah does, something Nehemiah says, inspires the people to action. And last week, if you were here, we talked about the fact that everyone joins Nehemiah in this momentous task of rebuilding these city walls, huge city walls, rebuilding the gates. And everyone was involved, men, women, priests, tradespeople, they all gathered to start rebuilding the walls. So as we finished out Nehemiah chapter three last week, we learned that everything was just going great for Nehemiah. If there was a chart to to, tra to track Nehemiah's progress, it would be going up and to the right because everything was just going so well until this morning. 
Nehemiah chapter four, verses one through two. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, this is Nehemiah writing the memoir of his life. When he heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? So Nehemiah starts to face some resistance. Sanballat, he was the governor of Samaria. It was a neighboring region to Jerusalem. I think when he saw Nehemiah arrive, he probably thought, oh, this will never come to anything. But now the wall is starting to be built and he's not happy. In fact, I don't know if you noticed there um, from what I read, what he did, but instead of going to Nehemiah and saying this, it says that in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said. So this is like a negative Yelp review. This is a Facebook post, okay? This is him saying in the company of other people, look at what this idiot's doing. There's no way he's gonna get it done. And how does Nehemiah respond? Was he afraid? Was he angry? Did he, did he retaliate? Did he fight back? No. We've come to learn that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. The very next verse, verse four, Nehemiah says, Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. It's almost like Nehemiah's going to God saying, God, this isn't me they're against. This is you they're against. So God, stand up for yourself. Do something about this. And I think if it was just this one guy being critical, even though many of us, if we're honest, we could have 100 people say something nice about us, but as soon as one person says something, uh, some kind of criticism, that's the only thing we can focus on. But even if Nehemiah was strong enough to kind of ignore one person's voice, we discover that it wasn't just Sanballat. Tobiah, verse three, Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down that wall of stones. So Sanballat, he's with the Sumerians, they're on one side, the Ammonites, they're on the other side of Jerusalem. Then a couple of verses later, verse seven, when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. In fact, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So suddenly, after three chapters of things going really well, they've really taken a turn here. This isn't just one person. This is all of the people surrounding Jerusalem, all of the people who up till this, up till this point had kind of profited from the, the trouble that Jerusalem is, was in. They had no protection, so they were probably paying taxes to some of these surrounding areas to keep them safe. They were reliant on these surrounding areas. And now these people start to see their influence, the wealth that they're receiving from these people. They start to see this disappearing and they're not happy about it. So what starts off as just a criticism now is built into a, a plan of attack from everyone. It's like everyone against the Israelites. 
This is getting pretty serious. And Nehemiah, I believe, is starting to feel the pressure of this. The enemy all around is rising up and it's starting to have an effect on the people. Listen to verses 10 through 12 of this chapter, how the people respond. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is given out. There is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Suddenly, the same work they're doing today that they were doing yesterday, it seems a lot harder. They're like, I'm not sure if we're strong enough. I'm not sure if we can complete this task. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. Our enemies, they've got these plans to come and kill us. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Our own people were coming to us saying, yeah, you you should be scared. If you're not scared, you should be scared because they're coming. They're surrounding you. So the people are facing this attack from within, their own voice, from without, the voice of their enemies, even from the voice of their friends. And like air escaping from a balloon, the courage and morale is leaving the people as everything around them starts to fall apart. And I think this is the kind of situation where you find out who the leader really is, what the leader is really made of. Nehemiah is looking at this situation thinking, this is it. This is, this is my moment. This is where it's all on my shoulders to either make or break this situation. It got me thinking of a story I heard once about um, a person who was uh, applied to be a police officer. They'd been through all the training and one of the final stages before they could be uh, officially declared a police officer was to be interviewed. And uh, in the interview, the, uh, the person decided to kind of play this, this role play situation. He said, I want you to imagine this situation I'm gonna put you in. And then based on your training so far, tell me how you would respond. So you're, uh, you're walking down the street one day in the city and you're on uh, patrol and uh, suddenly across the street, you hear the alarms go off at the bank and you see three masked men come running out, stumbling down the steps behind them is a security guard who's obviously been shot. The three masked men, they jump into their car to, to get away. And as they drive down the street, they lose control of their car. They hit another car. Then their car slides into some scaffold by the side of this, this big building that there's construction going on. Knocking down all the scaffolds, you see two or three construction workers fall and they're hanging from the scaffold, three or four stories up in the air. The car they've hit is now starting to catch fire and the person in the car is obviously trapped. And then you see a pregnant lady on the side of the road who sees all this happen and she's so shocked by what she sees that she goes into labor right there on the sidewalk. You're the only policeman around, what do you do? Guy thinks for a second, he says... I take off my uniform and I just blend in with the crowd. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I felt like that sometimes. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the guy who's got to figure out what. And I wonder if Nehemiah, as he was um, looking at the situation filled with his own fear, thinking back to just a short time ago when he was sat in the palace of the king, no one was threatening to attack him there. The people who just a couple of days ago were all on board, all building this wall, and now suddenly they're terrified. And all this pressure is on Nehemiah to now make the right decision. But we learn that Nehemiah was a leader. 
And in this moment, he rises to the challenge. I don't have time to read all of it, but the remainder of chapter four, if you go home today and read chapter four, it's, it's a fantastic chapter because you see, like, like this police officer in this moment, that kind of deer in the headlights moment, Nehemiah just jumps into action. He has half the workers continue to work, but he has the other half take up bows, swords, and shields. The ones who are working, he has them carry their material in one hand and a sword in the other. He comes up with a system to alert against attacks by sounding a trumpet. And, and he sets these people around with trumpets and, and they know that anytime the trumpet sounds, everyone is to go to the sound of the trumpet because that's where the enemy is coming from. He's an amazing leader because he comes up with these ways of saying, listen, we're not gonna be intimidated. We're not gonna stop work. The wall will continue to be built and here are some of the safeguards we're gonna put in place. And obviously, He's a good leader because the people follow his advice. So what can we learn this morning from Nehemiah? There's, there's so much more still to come in the life of Nehemiah. We've got a few more weeks. We're gonna talk about uh, what happens with the remainder of his time there in the city and the walls. But I just want us to focus on this one chapter this morning because I think there's some really good things that we can learn ourselves thousands of years later from the example that Nehemiah says. I think the first thing that we learn this morning is that you will face opposition. You will face opposition. If you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, and, and, and more than that, not just somebody who, who attends church, you know, but, but somebody who says, no, this is more than just an hour on a Sunday morning for me. As a follower of Jesus, I wanna live my life for him. When I go to work tomorrow morning, I wanna make decisions and I wanna behave in a way that um, reflects Jesus in me. Being a follower of Jesus is 100% of who I am. Maybe as a follower of Jesus, you've got some, some decisions you've made in your life that, that will move you forward, that you wanna make a stand in some certain areas because you believe that Jesus has, has called you to do this. If that's you, that there is a high likelihood that you're gonna face opposition. As you advance the kingdom of God, the enemy will push back. And we see this take place even in the New Testament. If you read about the life of Jesus, immediately after he's baptized, he hasn't even begun to do any miracles or teaching or anything like that. Immediately after he's baptized, he, he wants to prepare for his public ministry by spending time alone with his father in the wilderness, praying and fasting. And we read about it that he's, as he's out in the wilderness praying and fasting and preparing himself to advance the kingdom of God, to do, to do God's work, immediately he faces opposition. We learn that the devil comes and tempts him with these various different things to try and stop the work that he knows Jesus is gonna do. It doesn't work, as we know, because Jesus stands strong and then goes into three years of amazing ministry, healing people, um, reaching people who are far from God, teaching some wonderful things. He spends time with, with 12 young men, his disciples, who he pours his life into, impacts their lives so much that we get to read some of their writings later. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote a couple of letters himself in the New Testament, one and two Peter. And having spent all that time with Jesus, he understands the way the devil works. He understands what it's like to, to try and advance God's work in our lives and see the opposition push back. And he says in 1 Peter 5 eight, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Now, I do believe 
that the devil is real. I, I'm not sure that, that Satan himself is, is attacking us individually. I, wonder that he's, I would imagine he's got larger targets and bigger things that he's um, working in. But that doesn't mean that he hasn't set up systems and powers that were designed to have the same effect on us that Sanballat and his friends had on Nehemiah and the Jews. I know this because Paul, another um, man who wrote a large part of the New Testament, he wrote a letter once to a church in Ephesus, and he explained it this way in Ephesians 6 verse 12. For we, that's us as followers of Jesus, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. There is so much to unpack in that verse, and, and really it needs a separate series altogether of what it means to, to be a follower of Jesus and to push back against an enemy that is working hard to stop us, to dissuade us, to cause us to lose heart and lose hope. But I can tell you this this morning, it is real. And maybe this morning you're sitting here going, well, Dave, that kind of sounds intimidating. You might be here this morning just still investigating what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're like, Dave, this, this isn't setting it up well for me. I'm not sure I want to be if I'm going to face that kind of intimidation, that kind of opposition. Maybe as a follower of Jesus here this morning, you've made a decision to follow him and you're feeling challenged to, to step up a little bit and to do more for him and to, to pray more or to share more about him with your friends and family. And, and now you're realizing, well, if I'm going to face opposition, I'm not sure I want to do that. But I want to suggest this morning, the good will always outweigh the bad. The good will always outweigh the bad. And I think that the results will make the challenge worth it. A couple of hundred years ago, almost 300 years now, uh, a man by the name of John Wesley uh, lived. He was a, an, an Englishman who spent a lot of his life in America preaching and had a huge impact on America at the time. Revivals uh, led thousands and thousands of people into relationship with Jesus. This is an excerpt from his, his journal. Sunday a.m., May 7th, preached in St. Lawrence's, was asked not to come back anymore. Sunday evening, May 7th, preached at St. Catherine Cree's Church. Deacon said, get out and stay out. Sunday morning, May 14th, the following week, preached at St. Anne's, can't go back there either. <laughs> Sunday afternoon, May 21st, the following week, preached at St. John's, kicked out again. <laughs> Sunday evening, May 21st, preached at St. Somebody Else's, <laughs> in his journal, Bennett's maybe. Deacon's called a special meeting, said I couldn't return. If I'm John Wesley at this point, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> This is like a whole month of preaching engagements. A year later, 1739, Tuesday, May 8th, afternoon service, preached in a pasture in Bath. A thousand people came to hear me. Sunday, September 9th, preached to 10,000 people three weeks in a row in Moorfields. I'm so glad that John Wesley pushed back when he faced opposition, that he didn't give up. He made such a huge impact in the church that we're a part of today because he wasn't willing to, to fall back, to bow down when the opposition came. And here's the thing. Nehemiah teaches us some strategies. As we look at the life of Nehemiah, he actually teaches us some strategies. If this opposition is gonna come, there are some ways to deal with that opposition. Here's a huge one. He says, you mustn't lose perspective. Perspective. 
Nehemiah teaches us that we mustn't lose perspective. Listen to what he said to the people in verse 14. After I looked things over, I stood up and I said to the nobles, this is his William Wallace moment, the officials and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. There's something really important that Nehemiah says there that, that sometimes I think we forget. He says, stop looking at the enemy. Instead, look at God because he is great and awesome. He's teaching them about perspective. He's saying your fear is a, is a focus problem. It's a perspective problem. You're looking in the wrong place. There's a great story some of you may know in the Old Testament about a, a prophet by the name of Elisha. These amazing, miraculous things happened in his life. And one day, uh, this enemy king who Elisha was kind of speaking out against had had enough. And he sends his army to ca find, capture, and kill Elisha. So we read in this story in um, two chapter kings, that, uh, two kings, chapter six, that um, Elisha's servant wakes him up one morning and says, um, Elisha, Elisha, I've got terrible news. I went out this morning and the army of the king has surrounded the city. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of them, and they're here to kill us. And it's this wonderful story because Elisha says, God, open up his eyes. He prays his prayer, he says, open up his eyes. And then he says to his servant, go back out and look again. He says, don't be afraid. 2 Kings 6.16, don't be afraid because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And, and this probably didn't make any sense in the moment to this servant. But when he went back out, his, his eyes were opened and he could see that the, the army of the king was still there. But surrounding them was the angels, the, the army of the Lord. And they outnumbered all the enemy. Because Elisha knew this. He said, those who are with us are more than those who are against us. When the enemy attacks and we see that opposition, we need to switch focus from the problem to God himself. And here's the last thing I love that we can learn from Nehemiah this morning. That is that sometimes prayer is not enough. Sometimes prayer is not enough. Please don't tweet that just by itself because it doesn't sound like good advice from a pastor, okay? Um, let me at least unpack this a little bit before you post that. Dave Jane said, don't pray. <sighs> it's not what I'm saying. Don't get me wrong. One thing we do learn from Nehemiah is that every time he faced a situation, the very first thing he did was pray. He didn't argue. He didn't retaliate. He didn't post something on Facebook. He got out there and he said, God, I need your help. But listen to what Nehemiah did. As soon as he became aware of the fact that the enemies were surrounding them, the enemies were angry, the enemies were threatening to attack, verse nine, but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. We prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. What I read here is that Nehemiah prayed and posted a guard. He prayed and he put some, some practical protection in place. Prayer is so important, but I think we learn here from Nehemiah that God is in favor of prayer and some practical response. 
I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. Have you ever met someone and um, maybe they're out of work and, and you're talking to them and you're like, you know, what's going on? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm out of work. I don't have a job right now, um, but I'm really praying. And I'm just believing that God's gonna get me a job and I've been praying really hard and nothing's come up yet, but I, I'm still praying because I know that God's gonna get me a job. And you say to this person, have you, have you been to any interviews? Have you looked in the want ads? You know, have you gone online? Nope, just praying because I'm really believing God's gonna... You're just gonna wanna say to that person, hey, I think it's great that you're praying, you're trusting God, but you probably should get out there and knock on some doors as well. <laughs> you should probably get out there and, and do some interviews because I think it's okay to trust God and apply for some jobs. It plays out in other ways, doesn't it? Maybe you've got a friend who's, who's dealing with some health issues and you're like, hey, what's going on? I say, oh, you know, I've got this health thing, you know, but I'm praying, I'm just trusting God. Oh dear, have you been to a doctor? No, no, but I'm praying because I'm just trusting God. And you want to be like, hey, you know you can pray and take medicine. <laughs> it's okay to, to trust God and yet still take some practical steps here. And I think that's what we learn from Nehemiah here is that sometimes um, we lean back on prayer and trust in God. Whereas in actual fact, I think God wants to respond in our steps of faith. If you've ever tried to push a car that um, the battery's dead, you know, that, that once, when you're trying to push it, that thing just does not move. It takes everything in you. But once you start pushing it and some momentum builds, it's actually, you could kind of walk down the road with one hand just pushing that car because there's, and I feel like sometimes we're here with God. We're saying, God, please, please, please. And we're like a stationary car. And once we start taking some steps in the right direction and start taking some steps of faith, it's so much easier for God to come in alongside us and hear our prayers, open doors, respond to our prayers. Here's the conclusion I want to leave you with this morning. Now, this is kind of a silly thing I'm going to ask you to do, but just trust me, okay? Um, I want you to um, close your eyes and put one thumb in front of one eye so you can't see me. Like, put it right there, so yeah. Yeah? All right. You can take that thumb down now. <laughs> I'm going to try with Casey during worship because I knew I was going to do this at the end, so I was practicing, and everyone was worshiping. I'm sat here looking at the people on stage. She's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? I was like, well, I'm doing this thing at the end of my message. Well, go and practice in the lobby. Don't do it here. <laughs> so... So right now, if you hold your thumb in front of your eye, all you can see is your thumb. You can't see me. And I'm a pretty big guy. But if you start to pull your thumb away from your eye, in fact, if you open both eyes, suddenly your thumb gets smaller and smaller, and I get bigger and bigger. I will always be far bigger than your thumb. But if your thumb is right up in front of your eye like that, it's all you can see. It's all you can focus on. That's what happened with the folks that Nehemiah had to talk to. Suddenly they were laying down their tools and they were looking at the enemy all around and that's all they could see. When Elisha's servant walked out that morning, all he could see was the enemy surrounding them. Some of you came here this morning and all you could see was this situation in your life. You're looking for some breakthrough, but it hasn't come yet. You're looking for some answers. You haven't received them yet. And, and it seems like every time you, you go to bed at night, every time you wake up in the morning, that seems to be all you can focus on. And we learn from Nehemiah that the problem isn't that the, the enemy was there, it's that the focus, the perspective was wrong. Nehemiah said, listen, the mistake you made, the, the, the enemy aren't gonna go. The solution isn't for God to remove the enemy. The solution is for you to remember that God is so much bigger than the opposition. God is so much bigger than the enemy. And I believe he wants to remind us of that this morning, that some of us, as we leave here this morning, we need to take our attention off of the situation 
focus in on God. Not see the fact that this problem in our lives means there must be something wrong or God hasn't listened to our prayers because the reality is when you're a follower of Jesus, you're gonna face opposition. Problems will come in your life. But sometimes we need to, to change our perspective to focus in on God and trust him that he will come through. We need to pray and we need to take action. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this amazing story of this man who lived over 2,000 years ago. In and of itself, Lord, it's a fantastic story of you at work in the life of Nehemiah and the people of Israel. And there's so much we can learn just of your providence and your provision. And it's just a wonderful story. But here's the amazing thing, Lord. There are elements in the life of Nehemiah that we see in our own life. There are things that you do with Nehemiah that we see that you wanna do with us, Lord. There are enemies that are facing Nehemiah that remind us of some of the enemies in our life and the opposition that we face. So we take courage this morning as we read about Nehemiah, seeing that um, we don't know how this story is gonna completely end, but right now, what could have stopped the walls from being rebuilt, it didn't phase Nehemiah. He came up with a plan. A, a sword in one hand and a shovel in the other. We're gonna find a way to continue building these walls even though the enemy is surrounding us. Lord, I pray for everyone here this morning, anyone facing any kind of opposition in their life, that they wouldn't fall back, they wouldn't fade back, but they would know that, God, when you're with us, you're so much greater than those who are against us. Give us confidence and faith as we leave here this morning to remember that, I pray in Jesus' name.